welcome to My Favorite Theorem. I'm your host, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and this is your co-host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida. How are you doing, Evelyn? I am still on an eclipse high. Um, on Monday, a friend and I got up at, uh, well, got up in time to drive, get going at five in the morning mm. uh, to drive up to Idaho and got to experience uh, a total eclipse, which, you know, it you got, really you got totality? up to the hype. You, you got totality? Yes. Uh, we, we got into the band of totality for a little over two minutes. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we, we had... So, yeah. We had like ninety percent totality. It was it was still pretty impressive. There were the, the, and, and our astronomy department here set up uh, their telescopes. We have a great astronomy department here, and they they had the filters on, and there were there were there were probably five hundred kids in line to to see the eclipse. It was it was really pretty spectacular. Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. I'm already making plans to go visit my parents on April eighth, twenty twenty four, because they're in Dallas, which oh, is in mm -hmm. the path for that one. So very nice. Yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah, so I, I've been trying to, to get some work done this week, but then I just keep going and looking at my friend's pictures of the eclipse and NASA's pictures and everything. Right, right. So I'm sure, I'm sure I will get over that at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's great. But well, cl classes. It was the first day of classes here for the eclipse, so um, yeah. yeah, it was it was a bit it was a bit disruptive, but I th I think yeah, in a good uh, way. In a good my, way. Yeah. My spouse also had his first day of class, so mm -hmm. he couldn't come with us. Oh, too bad. Um, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, we are not here to talk about my feels about the eclipse. We are here <laughs> to uh, say welcome uh, Federico Ardila to the podcast. So Federico, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Yeah, first of all, uh, thanks so much for having me. So as Evelyn just said, my name is Federico Ardila. I never quite know how to introduce myself. I guess I'm a... Uh, I'm a mathematician, I'm a DJ, I'm an immigrant from Colombia to the US. And uh, yeah, and I guess most relevant to the podcast, I'm a, I'm a math professor at uh, San Francisco State University. I also have an, an adjunct position in, uh, in Colombia at the Universidad de los Andes. Uh, and I'm also just uh, spending the semester at MSRI in Berkeley as a research professor. So that's what I've been up to these days. I love MSRI. Oh, cool, just down the street oh. from you, then. Across exactly. the bay, across the bay, right? Yeah, I love exactly. it over there. I, I spent a semester there, and every day at tea time, and you walk into the to the lounge, and you get that full panoramic view of the bay, and you can watch the fog roll in through the gate. It's it's <laughs> really spectacular. I love it there. Yeah, you know, when when one tricky thing is just that you you kind of want to stay for the sunset because it's so beautiful, mm -hmm. but then you end up staying really late at work because of it. So yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it's the balance, I guess. Yep. So. Um, the point of this this thing is that we have someone has a favorite theorem. So so I actually don't know what your favorite theorem is. I'm I'm going to be surprised. So 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 what is it? What's your favorite theorem, Federico? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I apologize for not following your directions, but it was deliberate. So you know, you both asked me to tell you my my favorite theorem ahead of time, but uh, I'm not very good at following directions. But I also thought that. Since I want to talk about something that I think not a lot of people think about, I thought maybe I shouldn't give you a heads up so that we can talk about it and you can interrupt me with any questions that you great. Yeah, that get our, have about our it. real time um, reactions here. Exactly, exactly. So, um, and the other thing is that I think instead of talking about a favorite theorem, I want to talk about a favorite object. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a theorem related to that, but I think that uh, more than the theorem, what I, what I really like is the object. Um, okay. So I want to I want to talk a little bit about matroid theory. How much how much do you two think about matroids? I don't think Not about them all. much, but I, I, I 
I used to know what a Metroid is, and, and so remind us. <laughs> okay, excellent. Um, yeah, so, so Metroid Theory was, was uh, a, it's basically kind of an abstraction of the notion of independence. So, you know, this is something that um, a, was developed by a Hassler Whitney and uh, Garrett Burkhoff and Saunders mm -hmm. McLean in the, in the 30s. Uh, you know, back then you could write a thesis in graph theory at Harvard, and so actually this mm -hmm. was this was part of Hassler Whitney's uh, PhD thesis, uh, where he was trying to uh, solve the four-color theorem, mm. which basically says that if you want to color uh, the countries uh, in a map and you only have four colors, uh, then you will always be able to do that uh, in such a way that uh, that no two neighboring countries are going to have the same color. Mm -hmm. um, so this was one of the big open problems at the time. And, um, and so, you know, at, at the time they were trying to figure out what was kind of a more mathematical uh, grounding or structure that they could put on, on, on graphs. And so out of that, the, the, the theory of matroids was born. And, um, and this was in, in, uh, in a paper of Whitney in 1935, where he, he had the realization that, that the properties that graphs have with regards to kind of how, how uh, graphs cycle around, what the cycles are, what the, what the spanning trees are and so on, are exactly the same properties that, that vectors have. Uh, in, um, and so it was a very strong link between graph theory and uh, linear algebra. And, uh, and he basically tried to pursue kind of an axiomatization of, of what, was the, what was the key combinatorial essence of independence. Um, okay, and so by independence, is that like we would think of linear independence in a matrix. I mean, Matroid and Matrix are kind of suggestively similarly named. Um, so, is that that the right the right thing we should be thinking about for independence? Exactly. So, so you know, you might think that you have, let's say, a, a finite set of vectors in a in a vector space, and now you want to figure out what are the linear dependencies between them. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And uh, and actually, that information is what's called the Matroid. Basically, you know, saying okay, okay. you know, the, these two these two vectors are aligned, or maybe these three vectors lie on the same plane. Mm -hmm. uh, so that information is called the matroid. And, um, and so Whitney basically laid out some axioms for what, what were the kind of combinatorial properties that uh, the linear independence has. And what he realized is that this, these are exactly the same axioms that graphs have when you think about independence. I mean, now you need a new notion of independence. And in a graph, you're going to say that uh, you're going to have a dependence between edges whenever they form a cycle. So, okay. Uh, so somehow, you know, it is redundant to be able to walk from point A to point B in two different ways. Mm -hmm. And so whenever there is that redundance, mm -hmm. then that's what you call a dependence in a graph. Um, okay. And so basically, uh, Whitney realized that, that, uh, that these were the same kind of properties. And so he defined a matroid to be kind of an abstract mathematical object uh, that was supposed to capture that notion of, of independence. So. Okay. So, so this is very new to me, and and so I'm just kind of doing free association here. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm familiar with you know the adjacency matrix of a graph. It, does this contain information about the matroid, or is this kind of a, a little side path that is not really the same thing? No, that's a really good point. So, so to every graph, you can associate an adjacency adjacency matrix. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and basically what you do is, you know, if, if you have a, an edge from I to J, from vertex I to vertex J in the graph, then in the matrix, you put a column that has a bunch of zeros and then a one in position I and a negative one in position J. So you might think of this as the vector EI minus EJ, 
where the E's are the kind of standard basis in your vector space. And, uh, and you're absolutely right, Evelyn, that, that uh, when you look at the, the combinatorial dependencies between the graph in terms of graph dependence, mm -hmm. they are exactly the linear dependencies between that set of vectors. And so in that sense, that vector perfectly models the graph as, as, uh, as matrix theory is concerned. Okay. So yeah, that's a really good comparison. And, uh, and yeah, so you know, uh, one, uh, one reason that I love matroids is that uh, it turns out that they actually apply in a lot of other different settings. So there's many different notions of independence in mathematics. And, and it was realized over the years that they also satisfy these properties. So another notion of, of uh, independence that you might be familiar with is the notion of algebraic independence. So you, know, you learn this in a, in a course in kind of field extensions, uh, and you learn about transcendence degrees and transcendence bases and things like this. Right. Um, and so that's the notion of algebraic independence. And so it turns out that that notion of independence also satisfies these axioms that Whitney laid out, and so they also form a matroid. So basically, whenever you have a field extension, you also have a matroid. Yeah, so, so what's, the, what's the data you present when you say, okay, X is a matroid, right? If you're trying to write this down, what, what gets handed to you? So that's, uh, that's another really good question, and it's, uh, and it's uh, I think, a bit of a frustrating question uh, because it depends on who you ask. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the reason for this is that so many people encounter matroids in their, in their kind of everyday objects that they think of them in very different ways. Uh, and so some people, you know, if, if, uh, if they hand you a matroid, they're going to give you a bunch of sets. So maybe this is the most common thing is, you know, if, if, um, if you give me a, a, a list of vectors, then I could give you the, the linearly independent sets okay. out of your set of vectors. And so that'll be kind of a list saying, okay, you know, one and two are independent, one and four are independent. Uh, one, six, and seven are dependent, and so on. Mm -hmm. So that would be like a set system. But if you ask somebody else, then they might think of that as a simplicial complex, and then you know they might hand you a simplicial complex and tell you that's a matroid. Uh, or one thing that Birkhoff realized, and this was very fashionable in the 30s in Harvard, is to is to think about uh, lattices in the in the sense of uh, posets. Mm -hmm. And so you know if you had asked Birkhoff, then he would actually hand you a lattice and tell you that's a that's a matroid. And, and so I think this is something that's a bit frustrating for people that are trying to learn matroids, that there's kind of, I think there's at least 10 different definitions of what a matroid is, and they're all equivalent to each other. And uh, actually, Rhoda made up the name of cryptomorphism. <laughs> when you have the same theory, and you have two different axiom systems for the same theory, and you need to prove that they're, um, mm -hmm. that they're equivalent. So this is something that, you know, when I first learned about matroids, I, I, I hated it. I found it really frustrating. But I think as you... As you work with in, in this topic, you realize that you know it is very useful to have the insight that somebody in linear algebra would have, the insight that somebody in graph theory would have, the insight that somebody in, in algebraic geometry would have. And so to do that, you end up kind of going back and forth between these different kind of ways of presenting a matroid. Like the, the clothing that the matroid is wearing at the time or something. Like which, <laughs> which outfit do you prefer or something Absolutely. like that? Well, Absolutely. Well, being, being a good algebraic topologist, I want to say this, this sort of reminds me of category theory, right? Like, it, 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 can you describe these things as a functor from something to something else? You know, it sort of sounds like, you know, you've got these sort of structures that are preserved. They're all the same. It's the mm -hmm. same. They're, crypt they're cryptomorphic, right? Um, uh -huh. So there must be some kind of, you know, you've got a category of something in another different category, and, and a matroid is somehow a functor that kind of shows you this realization between them, or am I just making stuff up? 
I mean, well, so I should admit that I'm not a topologist, so I don't think a lot about categories. Yep. But I, but I definitely, but I definitely do agree that, uh, you know, over the last few years, one program has been to kind of set down more stronger algebraic foundations, and and mm -hmm. uh, and there's definitely a program of kind of categorizing matroids, and and uh, and so I, I, I'm not sure that what you're saying is exactly correct. I'm but, sure but it is, but, yeah. but it's definitely the kind of philosophy that that. Uh, that uh, is at play here for sure. Yeah. So, yeah. so you you mentioned that there was a theorem lurking behind your love of matroids. Yeah. So, uh, so maybe let, let me first mention one quick application. Okay. And then I'll tell you what what the what the object is that I really like. So, there's another application which is which is to matching problems. Um, mm. And so, you know, if this is for example, you know, one that I think academic mathematicians are very familiar with is the is the problem of matching job candidates and positions. Um, yeah. And uh, you know it's a very difficult problem, and uh, and here also you have a notion of dependencies in that, for example, you know if, if the same person is offered two different jobs, then they can only take uh, one of those jobs, and so in that sense, those two jobs kind of depend on each other. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it turns out that that uh, this setting also provides a matrix. Um, and uh, and one reason that that's important is that. That is a much more applied situation because you know there's many there's many situations in real life where you really need to do matchings and you need to do it quickly and you need to do it uh, inexpensively and mm -hmm. so on. Um, and so now, when when this kind of combinatorial optimization community got a hold of this these ideas and that when they were thinking, okay, you know, if I want to find a cheap matching quickly, then uh, one thing that that people do in optimization a lot is you know if you want to optimize something. You make a polytope out of it, mm -hmm. um, and so, and so this is the object that I really like and that I want to tell you about. So this is called the matroid polytope. Okay. Uh, and out of all these, you know, twelve different <laughs> sets of clothing that matroids like to wear, my favorite uh, outfit is the matroid polytope. And so maybe I'll tell you, a, maybe I'll tell you first, kind of in the abstract, why I, I like this so much. Uh, yeah, well, first, can we say exactly what a polytope is? Yes. Um, so, our, so we're thinking like a, a collection of vertices, edges, faces, and higher dimensional things, because this polytope might live in a high dimension. Is that what we mean? Exactly, yeah. So, you know, you might think, okay, if, if your polytope is in two dimensions, then it's just a polygon. If it's in three dimensions, then it's, it's the usual solids that we're used to, like, you know, like cubes or pyramids or prisms. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and they should have flat edges, uh, and so they should have vertices and edges and faces, like you said. And then the polytope is just kind of the higher dimensional generalization of that. So, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and again, this is something that the combinatorial optimization is very natural. They, you know, they really need these higher dimensional polytopes because if you have, yeah. if you have to match 10 different jobs, then you have 10 different axes that you need to consider, and so you get a polytope in 10 dimensions. You're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Right, the sort of yeah. like simultaneous solution or like feasible regions for multiple linear linear inequalities, right? And that's sort of... Exactly. Yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think uh, Edmonds was the first person who said, okay, you know, uh, I, want to, I want to study matrix. I'm going to make a polytope out of them. And uh, then one thing that they realized is that, you know, there is, there is a notion in algorithms of greedy algorithms, which is, you know, a greedy algorithm is when you're trying to accomplish a task quickly, and what you do is you just do the kind of, uh, at each point in time, you do what seems to be the best thing at the time. So for example, you know, if, if, we, if we go back to the, to the situation of matching jobs, then, then the first thing you might say is, okay, you might ask one school, okay, just what do you want? 
and then they would hire the first person and then you would ask the second school okay what do you want and then they would ask they would kind of choose the next best person and so on okay. and we you know we, we know that this strategy doesn't usually work so <laughs> yeah. it's a good solution to be you know this is the like no long-term planning solution <laughs> but, you know you, you just do what, what immediately seems the best thing to do um but what this community realizes is that matroids are exactly where greedy strategies work uh, mm. and so that's another way of thinking of matroids is you know where does the greedy algorithm work and uh and the way they prove that is with this polytope okay so okay um, so so for optimization people there's this polytope but it turns out that this polytope also arises in several other settings so so there's a really beautiful paper of Gelfand, Goreski, Max Fersen, and Serganova, and they're doing algebraic geometry, and, and mm -hmm. uh, they're studying toric varieties. And then you know you, you don't need to know too much about what this is, but the, the the main point is that if you have a toric variety, there is a polytope associated to it, uh, and uh, there's something called the moment map that takes a toric variety and takes it to a to a polytope. Um, and so in this very different setting of toric varieties, they encounter the same polytope. Uh, and coming from, from algebraic geometry. Also, the, uh, there's a third way of, of seeing this polytope coming from commutative algebra. So if you have a, an ideal in a polynomial ring, uh, and again, it's, maybe it's not too important that you know exactly what this means, but there's a recipe given an ideal to get a polytope out of it. And, and again, there's a very natural way that given a very natural ideal, you get the same polytope mm -hmm. kind of coming from commutative algebra. And so this is one reason that I like this this, poly, this polytope a lot because it, it really is kind of a very interdisciplinary object. It's it's nature, you know. It draws from optimization, it draws from algebraic geometry, it draws from commutative algebra, and it really captures the essence of of these of these matrices that have applications in in uh, in many different fields. So that's kind of the favorite object that I that I wanted to to tell you about. Well, I, I like this instead of a theorem in some sense, right? I mean, like I I, I learned something today. I mean, well, I learned something every day, but but. Um, <laughs> um, this idea that, you know, mathematics and mathematicians know this and a lot of people outside of mathematics don't is that the same structures show up all over the place, you know, and, and, and so we can, and, and like you say, sort of the, the interesting, it's, it, like combinatorics is interesting this way, you count things two different ways and you get a theorem. Um, mm -hmm. This is sort of like a, 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 a meta version of that in the sense where, you know, you've got this, these different instances of this sort of fundamental object. So, I mean, Whitney essentially found this fundamental idea and then we can point out and go, oh, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there. That that's, you know, it, it, it's very rich, and then it, you know, it gives you lots to do, right? Like you never mm -hmm. run out of problems, in some sense. Mm -hmm. And it also yeah. forces you to learn all kinds of new stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, so so you know, maybe you came at this from combinatorics or whatever to begin with, but you know, then you've had to learn some algebraic geometry, and you've had to learn, you know, yeah. all these other things. Um, so it, it's it's really really wonderful. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're really getting at one one thing that I really li like about studying. Uh, which is that, I mean, I think in, uh, I'm always arguing with my students that, you know, they'll say, oh, I do analysis, I don't do algebra. Oh, I do algebra, I don't do topology. Yeah. And, uh, and this is one field where you really can't get away with that. You, you really yeah. need to appreciate that, the, that mathematics is very interconnected and that if you really want to kind of get the full power of the objects and if you really want to understand them, you, you kind of have to learn many different ways of thinking about the same thing, which, mm -hmm. which uh, I think is really beautiful and really powerful. So then was the theorem that you were talking about, is this the theorem that basically the greedy algorithm works on polytopes or is this something else? So, let, so, no, so the theorem is a little bit different. So I'll tell you what the theorem is. Uh, so, you know, out of, out of all the polytopes, there is one that is, that is uh, very fundamental, which is the, the cube. Mm. Uh, now, as you know, mathematicians are weird. And for us, cubes, you know, for example, for a square is a cube, a segment is a cube. 
Uh, cubes exist in every dimension. So in, in zero dimensions, it's a point. In one dimension, it's a segment. In two dimensions, it's a square. Sure. In three dimensions, it's the three cube. And, and then in any dimension, there is a cube. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the theorem that uh, Gelfand, Goreski, McPherson, and Serganova proved, which probably Edmonds knew at least to some extent, so he was, he was uh, coming from optimization, is that matroids are exactly the subpolytopes of the cube. Uh, in other words, you, you choose some vertices of the cube and you don't choose others. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of look at what polytope that determines. Uh, and that polytope is going to be a matroid if and only if the, the edges of that polytope are all of the form EI minus EJ. Mm. And actually, this goes back to, to, what, to what you were saying at the beginning, Evelyn. So these are exactly those vectors that have a bunch of zeros, and then they have exactly one one and one negative one. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so matroid polytopes have the property that every edge is one of those vectors. And, and what I find really striking is that the opposite is true, that if you just take any subpolytope of the cube and the edges have those directions, um, then you have a matroid in your hands. So first of all, I think that's a really beautiful characterization. It's so uh, clean. It's just very yeah. neat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then the other, the other thing is just that, you know, this collection of vectors, EI minus EJ, uh, is a very fundamental collection of vectors. So you know, this is the, the root system of the Lie algebra of type A. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this, this, this might sound like a, a nonsense, but, uh, but the point is that this is, this is uh, one of uh, about seven families uh, of uh, root systems that control a lot of very important things in mathematics, Lie groups, Lie algebras, uh, regular polytopes, things like this. And, uh, and so also this theorem points to how actually the, the theory of matroids is just a theory of type A, so, so to say, that has analogs in, in, you know, in many other Coxeter groups. And it, it basically connects to the tradition of Lie groups and, and Lie theory and all of that stuff. And it, it, show, it, it begins to show how this is a much deeper theory mathematically than, than I think anybody anticipated at first. Mm -hmm. so. Oh, cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, so I understand that you have a musical pairing for us today, and we all have it queued up. We're, we're recording this with headphones, so we all are going to listen to this uh, simultaneously. Um, and then you'll, right. you'll tell us a little bit about what it is. Uh, okay. And, okay. Yeah. So, so are we ready? So I'll count yep. us down. Yeah. All right. So, so I'll say three, two, one, and then play. Okay. So three, two, one, play. So there's a little. There we go. There we go. Okay. So maybe we'll let this play for a little while. Okay. And uh, and I'm going to I'm going to ask you uh, kind of what you hear when you hear this. Uh, one reason I chose this is that I saw I saw that you like percussion. And, I do. Uh, yeah. My son's a percussionist. Uh, yep. Uh huh. But uh, so this is. But one thing that I want to ask you is is you know when you hear this what do you hear? Uh, well I hear a lot. He's got I mean, a really neat. Complex rhythm going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you speak Spanish? A little. Otra vez again. Uh, <laughs> so it's yeah, called. No, I I do not. It, sadly, it, it, it's called Quitalo de, del Rincón, which. Uh -huh. um, I'm sorry, I don't know what Quitalo means. Yeah, so this song is called Quitalo del Rincón yeah. by Carlos Embales, mm -hmm. um, and uh, he's a he was a Cuban musician. Mm -hmm. 
Now, one, one thing is that Cubans are famously hard to understand. Sure. <laughs> so I think even for Spanish speakers, they can, this can be a little bit tricky to understand. Um, but uh, so do you have any idea what's going on, what he's singing? No idea. So, so this is actually he's, a math lesson. I was about to say he's counting. I, I, heard, I heard some numbers in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a little yeah so, this is, okay. so it's actually a math lesson. Um, okay. And, uh, and I just think, man, like, why can't we get our math lessons to feel like this? And this, is, this has been something that, uh, <laughs> that has kind of shifted a lot my, my understanding about pedagogy of, of mathematics. Uh, just to kind of imagine a, a math class that looks like this. Is he just trying to teach us how to count, or is, it, is there more going on back there? It, so, so it's it's kind of an arithmetic lesson. But one one mm -hmm. thing that I really like is that it's uh, it's all about treating mathematics as a community practice, and it's saying, okay, you know, if there's somebody who doesn't want to learn, then we're going to put them in the middle, and we're all going to make sure that they learn with us. And and uh, oh, uh, yeah, no, gonna... it's it's. Uh, so, so we're so not going to let anyone off the hook. In other words, exactly, exactly. Right. No, it's, oh, you know, cool. it's, uh, we, we all need to succeed together. It's not about the top students only. Very oh. cool. Okay, well, we'll, we'll certainly uh, we'll put a link to this uh, on, on, on the blog post. I'm going to go ahead and fade it out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, same here. Um, you know, the, I, I think the, the other reason that, that I... Maybe I can tell you a little bit more about why I chose this song. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I should say that you, this was a very difficult task for me because, you know, if choosing one theorem is hard for me, choosing one song is, is much sure. harder. But, uh, <laughs> um, but as, I, as, I, as I mentioned, I, I, also, I also DJ. And uh, whenever I go to a math conference, I always set aside one day to kind of go to the local record stores and see, mm -hmm. and see what I will find. And, and oddly enough, I found this uh, record in, uh, in a record store in, I want to say, like Ann Arbor, Michigan. Mm. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, a very unexpected place for, for this kind of music, um, and um, and yeah, it, it it was just a, a very nice find that kind of managed to explain to me how how my my kind of being as a mathematician, my being as a DJ, might actually influence each other, and how actually, you know, when when as a DJ, my job is always to kind of provide a uh, an atmosphere where people are enjoying themselves, and and it took me. See, here in this record to connect that actually this is also my job as a mathematician and as a math teacher is also to kind of create atmospheres where uh, people can learn math joyfully and where everybody can can uh, have a good experience and, and learn something so um, so in, in in that sense it's a very powerful song for me um, the other thing that I really like about it is that I, and why I wanted to pair it with the matrix is that uh, I think this is music that you cannot possibly understand if you don't appreciate the complexity of, of the history of of what goes behind this music, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's definitely a very strong African influence. Uh, mm -hmm. There's definitely, you know, they're singing in Spanish. There's there's uh, indigenous instruments, and right. and I've always been fascinated by how by how you know people always try to put borders and they try to tell people not to cross borders and they try to kind of divide and mm -hmm. um, but music is something that that has never respected those borders and no. and uh, and that. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm fascinated how this song clearly has roots in Africa. Then it went to Cuba. Then actually, this this kind of music went back to Congo and and became a form of music called the, the Congolese rumba. Uh, then that music evolved and went back to Colombia. And it became a Colombian form of music called champeta. 
and uh, and in my mind, it's it's actually kind of similar to to what I was saying earlier. That you know, sometimes in, in mathematics, you have to appreciate that you cannot put things into separate silos, and and, mm -hmm. and you cannot expect to just be a combinatorialist or just an algebraist or just a geometer. If you really want to kind of understand the full power of mathematics, you have to be able to travel with uh, the mathematics and. And this kind of resonates with with uh, my taste in music. That I think, if you really want to understand music, you have to kind of appreciate how it travels around the world and yeah. celebrate that. So, so that's my pairing. So, so this isn't yeah. just a math podcast today. It's also ethnomusicology and something like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. That, well, it's something about that. You know, rhythms are universal, right? We all feel these things, and uh -huh. uh, you know, you, you can't help yourself, right? You start hearing this this rhythm, and you go. Yeah, I get this. This is this is fantastic, you know. Um, yeah, what our what yeah. our listeners cannot uh, cannot see, but I can is is uh, how everybody was dancing. That's here right. You know, we yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's undeniable. And and of course, you know, Cuban music is so interesting because that it's such a diverse place, so many diverse influences. Just and people think of Cuba as being this closed off place. Well, that's just because from the United States, you can't go there, right? Right. You know, it's it's it. You know, everybody else goes there, and they think it's great, mm -hmm. and. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, of course, living in Florida, there's a weird relationship with Cuba here, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is a real shame because, I mean, uh -huh. you know, what what an interesting culture. But uh -huh. oh well, uh, maybe yeah. someday, maybe someday. <laughs> <laughs> it's just right there, you know. And you just, and you just mm -hmm. think, why, why can't we? it's just right there? Why can't we go? You know, and uh, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. Um, would you like to share any websites or social media or anything that our listeners can find you on, or any projects you're excited about? Sure. So uh, I do have a, a Twitter account. Uh, mm -hmm. I occasionally tweet about uh, math or uh, music or soccer. <laughs> I try not to tweet too much about politics, but sometimes I can't help myself. Yeah. Uh, so that, uh, people can find that at uh, Federico Ardila, F-E-D-E-R-I-C-O-A-R-D-I-L-A. -E mm -hmm. uh, that's my Twitter feed. I also have an Instagram feed with the same, with the same name. And then um, if uh, if people are interested in the the kind of math, uh, sorry, the the music nerd side of uh, what I do, so uh, so my DJ collective is called uh, La Pelanga. That's L-A-P-E-L-A-N-G-A. -A -A. And uh, we have a website, lapelanga.com. We have a, you know, Twitter, Instagram, all these things. And we, we actually, uh, one thing we do is collect a lot of old records that have traveled from Africa to the Caribbean, to Colombia, to various different parts. And uh, many of these records are not available digitally. And so sometimes we'll just digitalize a song and put it up there for people to hear. So, you know, if people like this kind of music, I think that might be interesting uh, to visit. Yeah. Uh, and then I have my website, so you know, people yeah. just Google my name, then they'll find it, and I have various other resources there. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really great, Federico. Thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. It's, it's been really fun. Okay. Take care. Yeah. Right. Take care. Bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lane. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chao Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivik that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. 
The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics. <laughs>